Thank you for listening to the 930 Sunday Sermon Podcast from the Woodway Campus of Second Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about the church, please visit us at second.org. That's second.org. I think everybody here would like to hear God say an audible word to us, that God would speak audibly, straight, clear instructions for all of us individually and collectively. He's about to do it as I read his word audibly, out loud, he's speaking clearly to you and to me. Hebrews chapter number 12, verse number 11. Now to discipline seems to me, no, now no discipline seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, after it yields, that's discipline, the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And that it is discipline. God loves those He disciplines, says the Bible. Let's pray. Father, we look to you for instructions. We're talking to parents, but yet we're talking to all of us as we seek to be spiritual leaders in every arena. Thank you, Father, for the discipline you have exacted in our lives. And oh Lord, we prayed that especially parents will be informed as to how to bring up their children in the way that you would have them to. So these sons and daughters will become those men and women that are so desperately needed in the 21st century. Lord, you speak, let me get out of the way as I prayer in Jesus' name, amen. As all animals that God created, you had to pick one that was really phenomenal in so many ways, a candidate would be a giraffe. Giraffe, high, high, way up there, long legs. When a giraffe gives birth, a female giraffe, to a little giraffe, the first thing that little newly born giraffe experience is a drop of about eight feet. Boom, right up front. Welcome to the world. (laughs) Following that, the giraffe leans over the mother giraffe And with those big lips, kisses, touches, smells, 
the whole body of this newborn baby and gives off sort of a humming, haunting sound communicating to that newborn that, that you are special, that you are loved, you are my son, you're my daughter. And then following that, the mother giraffe backs up and kicks that newborn giraffe as hard as she can. Usually the little giraffe is airborne and the baby lands and the mother giraffe kicks it yet again and again as hard as she can until finally the little newborn gets up on those wobbly legs and begins to stand because the newborn could not be fed unless the newborn was standing because it's too far up to get to the mother. And then that newborn giraffe has about 10 minutes to get his stability and then has only about 10 hours, 10 hours of coming to this world to be able to run and keep up with a herd that will be moving out. If that baby giraffe cannot do that, I can tell you the hyenas and the wolves love the meat of newborn giraffes. What kind of mother is that? First of all, it is a mother that I would call began parenting nearsighted. That mother hovered over that newborn, licked and loved and smelled and made those haunting noises to let that newborn babe to know up close, you're mine. I'm proud of you. I carried you. You're in the world. That is up close, nearsighted parenting. And then that mother giraffe backs up and kicks that newborn repeatedly until the newborn stands. And that is farsighted parenting, knowing unless that newborn gets up, begins to run with a herd, is able to feed him or herself, that newborn will not survive. That's wise parenting, is it not? Because we've been talking about marriage. We've already decided if you want your son or daughter to become that which they can become and God has called them to become, mom and dad have to have a marriage that sings. That's the foundation of it all. And then on top of that, there are biblical principles that we have is how to bring up these children, to bring up these children. Post-modern psychological parenting is a fraud. Dr. John Redmond, who I think has written the best material you'll ever find on how to be a biblical parent. He was a PhD in psychology but he realized that all the ideas of postmodern psychology, what is that? Postmodern believes there's no absolutes. They believe everything is relative. They believe that a child is born and the child is pure and perfect. It is the parents because they're messed up. 
parents mess up their children because they were been messed up by their parents and their parents messed up them. And it's gone all the way down the line, even in DNA. And therefore to be saved in postmodernism is to go to a counselor, to go to a professional secular psychologist and let this secular psychologist walk you through your life, Freudian style, and you'll begin to pick up, well, this happened there, and this happened over there, and my mother, my dad, and this and that and the other, trying to explain you and trying to explain me through postmodern psychology. And it is an ongoing affair. You'll need counseling for the rest of your life to pick out all the things that made you like you are, and their basic theory is determinism. You don't have free will. Everything is really determined by environment, by background, by parents, by other influences, other events in your life. That's postmodernism. Christianity says that a baby was born and is in the image of God, but that baby lives in a fallen world, and that baby, therefore, is a fool. We talked about that if you were here last week. What is a fool? A fool is somebody that does not know what is best for them. Want to debate that? Sure, that's a fool. And therefore, a lot of us are fools because we do things, say things, have done things, have said things that was not the best for us right? It's called rebellion. And therefore, we are saved not by ourselves. We know that we confess that we were born in sin and that we have sinned, and we turn away from all of that in our life and ask Jesus Christ to make us brand new. We need the phrase is be born again, a fresh new start. That's Christianity, a totally different view. Therefore, if we're parenting our children this way, postmodern, postmodern parenting way, or we're parenting our children according to God's principles, God's way, as taught in his book. And I have looked at verse after verse after verse after verse, and I've seen so many verses, so many lifestyle situations that teach us through that book, how to be a mom and how to be a dad. Now, let me say something up front to make every parent mad. If you're not mad at this, you didn't hear this. And I'm gonna end up here. If you have a problem with one of your children, the problem is not with the child, it's with mom and dad. If your children are making you uptight, uneasy about something, you've got this thing mixed up. You see, when problems come up in the disciplinary area of children, the pain that the parents feel has to be transferred to the child. And that's what discipline does. And we have to understand that if we're going to be effective parents. Now, you wonder how things turn out. Why people turn out that you do not expect them to turn out. My kids and grandkids love to come to my house and get some of the old annuals, 
You know, when you graduate, you get an annual and, and they have all that. They love to look up about me and what happened when I was in high school. And there's little reports there. In our annual, George S. Gardner High School in Laurel, Mississippi, they have a prophecy of every graduate. And you read those prophecies. I guess that's true of most schools. And man, we had coming out of our little class, we had people who were scientists, we had people who were presidents, who were CEOs. They were brilliant, they were creative, they were geniuses. They just did everything in the world and you would think our class was gonna run the universe by the prophecies of what was gonna to happen to us as we got out of high school. Now, I was in that prophecy. Now, the prophecies were made up by fellow students and by faculty who put the yearbook, the annual together, right? And the prophecy for Edwin Young, Alan Weldy, and John Vernon was this. I could not make this up. Now, oh, that we would be the successors to the Three Stooges. Moe, Curly, and Larry, who were undoubtedly the dumbest people in America and the most ridiculous people in America. And at that time, they were big, big everywhere. They're still on television. I bump into them now and then. I say, there I am, I say. And that was a prophecy for the three of us. Isn't that interesting? That tells you where I was, where my two buddies were, when we graduated from high school in the eyes of faculty and students. You know about me, unlikely to proceed. If you picked every vocation I thought I would ever be involved in, I guarantee you the ministry would be the bottom of the list out of a list of a thousand. That was not me, but God had other plans and jerked me up and here I am. Now, Alan Weldy, one of the other students, his daddy was a postman. My daddy was blue collar electrician at this time. Later we had a country store just about the size of this platform. His daddy was a postman. He graduated from Ole Miss, got another graduate degree and went to Redstone Arsenal and worked with Dr. Warner Von Braun when they were working on compulsion and the atomic power and spent his career there. That was one of the stooges. The other stooges was John Vernon, graduate Ole Miss, got a master's from Georgia Tech, a PhD from MIT. He was professor of economics for 30 plus years at Duke University and wrote the textbook for many, many years for economics in most of the colleges and universities in America and was considered one of the foremost economists in all the world. That was another one of the stooges. My point, what did our parents do? You know, look at us, parents, well, I really looked at this. Our parents saw that every Sunday we were in Sunday school, Bible study, and church, every Sunday. 
unless we were gone or providentially hindered, genuinely providential. And by the way, being providentially hindered doesn't mean there's a football game at the same time, incidentally. <laughs> we were in church. They saw we were in church. Huh. They saw that we had our meals with their family. Huh. They had rules and parameters for the three of us as to how we conducted ourselves, and we knew we stayed in those rules or parameters or we were in big, big trouble. Huh. They didn't debate with coaches and musicians and teachers in school. They were the authority there, and all three of us had good manners, and we knew how to say, yes, sir, and thank you. Huh. Boy, that's wild, isn't it, for three stooges to be. You see, parenting, parenting is vital, it is important, and there's all kinds of parenting. I go back to my giraffe. There is a kind of parent. By the way, I hope everyone here who is a parent have been a parent, your grandparent. We'll put this in context and look back as I have and said, is he saying something into my life? You know, we could hear scripture, get biblical principles, sit in church and walk away and not change and rethink the decisions that we make and the decisions we have made. You can have a rut. I can walk across this stage. I'm in that rut and I will go right back in that rut until something happens and I realize that's not the way I ought to go, the way I ought to walk, and we make those changes. They can be cataclysmic changes. Some parents, grandparents, need to re-understand where we as grandparents failed and where parents now can wake up and begin to bring up our children according to biblical principles, and they're not too complex, it's not. God's way of living, by the way, is not complicated. Oh, it's just so, no, it's not complicated. And therefore, there is a couple of types of parenting I want us to look at. First of all, there is that up-close parenting. There is that nearsighted parenting. Mothers are very, very skilled at this. By the way, when I say something, ask the question, could he be talking about me? Okay, would you do that? Could you be talking? Don't say, oh, that's somebody. No, no. There's some nearsighted parents who just deal with that which is right now. Homework. Oh, I want to make sure that, that Billy, he, he, is, he is seven. He has to get all of his homework exactly right. And I'm going to help him and tutor him and check it to make sure it's turned in. And you do that on and on and on again because you want him to be a student. You want him to be a student. And so you go on and on and never do you allow your child to turn in a homework that is not accurate or is not checked. And when they get in trouble, you're always there taking the place. You want your child to be happy, accepted, have as little pain as possible not go through the things you went through as a child, and so you are there micromanaging your child. Micromanaging your child. 
every micromanager, whether it's in the business world or the family world, are always tense and uptight. You're, you're, every little thing is catastrophic. Everything is catastrophic. Everything is an Armageddon. And the same kind of micromanagers, particularly mothers here, in the afternoon, you are a chauffeur with one or two children, and you're going from an athletic event to a dance event to a class here, and you're going boom, 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 boom. I want to keep my child occupied so they'll be good. I want to fill them with all these multiplicity of opportunities in every kind of discipline. And those micromanaging mothers, they are tired and they are empty. This being a mom is such a hard, exhausting thing. Oh, I don't see how I'm going to make it. I can name dozens of moms who fall in that category. Now, dad is sort of a, like a teacher's aide. <laughs> He's not really on the agenda. He's on the periphery. And he's not really involved directly in all this micromanaging, but somehow he applauds it from a distance. And this is when a mom and even a dad can be so involved. Your children sometimes need to experience the pain, the results of poor choices they make. Now, by the way, remember I put all this in context? You can't go from birth to 18 with this. Remember, I put in context. So this applies in different situations according to age, according to maturity, according to a lot of things. Remember, you got zero to three. That's when mom is what? Mom's a slave. Particularly that first year, that's all you do. The second year, you begin to try to teach that now one-year-old son or daughter how to do some things for themselves. They begin to be three to 13, Parents, that is the critical time in which you become like God. You become a general to your kids. A general to your kids. And we'll talk about how to discipline. So you have to apply this age appropriate, season appropriate to your kids as I'm giving general principles of discipline. By the way, what, what, does, it, what does the word discipline mean? The word discipline, the etymology is you are to make a disciple. When you discipline, you make a disciple, a follower, someone who is trained. So micromanaging nearsighted mothers really is not the, now there are some times you have to get in there close, I, don't, I know that, but it cannot be your agenda. Your whole life revolves around the child, I mean, dad, husband gets leftovers way out there somewhere. Micromanaging, a deadly thing to bringing up a child. Now, you can have one afternoon activity, maybe a season, but you cram it all full. You're exhausting them. You're exhausting yourself. You're over-involved over in the life of that child. Back up. Let them fail something. Let them make some mistakes. Let them get in trouble micromanaging on and on and on, and it will go on and on and on forever. I stood out here and talked to 
five teenagers right out there in the hall a few months back. And I said, what are y'all worried about? Every one of them said the same thing. Oh, I hope we have grades enough and scores enough to get in the college we want to go to. That was their whole passion. They, they just echoed that. Parents, what is your goal for your son or daughter? 30 years from now, where do you want them to be? Now we move from nearsighted parenting. We move there to what? Farsighted parent. You see the end, the goal that is out there. I want to ask you a question. 30 years from now, your son or your daughter, let's say you have a son. That son finishes the university, makes good grades, goes with the corporation, rises to the top, becomes a CEO. Oh, how proud I am of my boy. He's 30 and he's already CEO of this corporation. Oh, he's really got it. The only problem is he's already divorced from his wife. He's sending money so she can bring up the kids. He's a womanizer. He thinks the whole world revolves around him, his success, his money, and it's all about me. That's your boy. 30 years, boy, upward success. Now you have a daughter, she knows God. She knew God had a plan for her life. She has a gift of teaching. And now she's been teaching in the school and boy, she is contagious to the kids. They love her. She speaks truth into them, information and the word of Christ. She's not worried about getting married. She may or may not, that's no big deal. She has a call of God to invest God in Christ and information in the area of her discipline in life as son or daughter. Which one of those kids that you rather have, the boy or the girl? Easy answer, isn't it? But we are shooting for like the boy. And therefore, we are trying to micromanage our kids so they'll be on that road to human success. And I can tell you for every person who is fabulously, humanly successful, once in a while they stay and walk with God, but so many times they go the very opposite direction. They're caught up and bought by the world. Look at the long picture, folks. Far-sighted parenting. Let me give you some principles of discipline in far-sighted parenting. I want you to look at these. First of all, you discipline with love. By the way, you can't have love without truth. Listen to me now. Oh, I love my child. Love without truth is mushy. Mushy. Oh, I love you. Have to have truth. Truth without love is hard and cold and exacting. So love and truth have to get married in your discipline. See, a lot of people say, oh, I love my kids, but you don't love them enough to spend the time and the energy and the talent and the insight to really see that God works in their lives and they are becoming the man or woman that God designed. You see, our goal out there is what? Our goal is... We let our kids know that they are significant and they're safe. That's what they need. But the goal out there for them is that they know Christ and they have character. 
Christ in character. That's the goal. And, and the far-sighted parrot keeps their eye on the ultimate goal when they get to the end, and that is with love and truth. Now, without love, there's no discipline. I think love and discipline for the parent are synonyms. Unconditional love. Not on the basis of how you're doing good or how you're doing bad, how you're behaving or not behaving, you're making good grades or bad grades or I, I like your friends or I don't. You just love them unconditionally. Your love is not purchased by their conduct. Love, discipline. Next thing, discipline sooner and not later. Do it now and particularly in that zero to one years of age or three or four or five. Let me tell you, a, a slap on the hands, pain is involved. Yeah, but that's not what the rod is all about. We've already discovered that. You talk about God's rod means that we bring up our children according to his principles. That's his rod, that is his rule. Doesn't mean we beat, but sometimes it takes physical discipline, but used proportionally at the right time in the right place. Use the word no. That's a good word. The children have to understand when you say no, you don't mean maybe or let's argue about it or, or what do you think and I want your opinion. Now that may be later on when they get to be older teenagers, but you've got up front, mom and dad, they're in those formative years of three to 13, when you say no, you mean no, and you stick by with it, and that's the end of the story. Why? It's because I said so. That's three to 13. If you're not doing that, I'll show you in a minute how you're in real trouble. Look at the next part. Know your child's temperament. All children are wired differently. I hear parents saying, well, my second son is so different from my first son. Well, Dick Tracy, welcome to the world. We're all different. Parents say that like it's a phenomenal thing. I've got three sons, Ed, Ben, and Cliff. Ed was hard-headed. We used tough discipline with him. Ben, logical, you could talk to him. Cliff had a tender heart. You would look at him when he made a mistake and it touched him and hurt him deep. Three different boys, three different men. Study your child, know their temperament, how they're wired. You say, well, I did this with my boy and now I'm doing the same thing, it's not working. They are different. Wake up, mom, dad, to the world of reality. So, and you don't wait, you know your child's temperament, and most of all, you keep your cool. If I made a lot of mistakes as a father, and every time I lost my cool, I made a giant mistake, and I did. If I'd counted to a hundred, sometimes a thousand, <laughs> I would have been a better dad. Keep your cool, just back up. Wait a little bit. There's not a dad here who's like, boy, if I'd kept my coup. Now get involved. Play with your kids, wrestle with your kids, hug your kids, tuck them in. That's a part of it. But keep your cool. Don't respond when you're angry. Back up. Take a time out for yourself as much as for them. Be consistent. I asked two of my sons I talked to this week, the other one I haven't reached, 
And I asked him, what, what, what about your home? Let, you, let tell your dad what was different. What did we have? And both of them said, you and mom were consistent. I said, boy, I didn't know it, but I'm thankful that we were. You got to be consistent. And that's a part of all the disciplinary things. Now, when you say no, how many ways can you interpret no? I want you to show, see these up here. How many ways can you throw? There's not a lot of choices you have about decisions. All right. First of all, there are only six answers to a child that says, why? You got this? Only six. Follow me. You ought to be writing it down in your heart. You can say, whatever they're asking to do or not do, you can say, you're not old enough. That's a no. Number two, you might get hurt. Number three, we don't have the money or won't spend the money on that. Number four, don't have time or won't take time. Number five, we don't believe in that. Number six, we don't like those kids. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there are only six. You can't name another one. When you say there's only six reasons for a no, write them down. They're not 10, 15, or 100. You're not in a debate. You'll lose. If you start debating, you've already lost up front. There's only six reasons for you to say no. And when you say that, you say, I'm with you and walk. Parenting. Long distance parenting. Far-sighted parenting for the goal out there. For the goal that's out there. That's G-O-A-L, goal. Now, Let's just get real, 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 real practical. In disciplinary matters, you say, well, you got a problem of your kids. When they come in from school, they take off their shoes, throw them on the floor, throw their jacket over here, go upstairs, undress, take all their school clothes off, throw them on the floor everywhere and they get redressed. And you tell them, go pick up your clothes. Well, they don't do it. Well, you say it loud, go, go pick up your clothes. They don't do it. You say it loud and maybe they pick up part of them. What in the world are you going to do? How are you going to discipline them? Tell you something. What you do, you go and pick up all their clothes and put everything where it belongs. Shoes, satchel, whatever. Then you take that son or daughter with you and say, I want you to go with me. This is where your shoes belong. You got it? Yeah. I put them there, right? Yeah. This is where your coat, your sock, everything you go through and you walk around and show them firsthand as if they didn't know where everything belongs, okay? And then you say, next time I say pick up your clothes, I want you to put all those clothes right back where they belong. Not part of them, some of them, all of them. If you do not, here's what's going to happen. Saturday, you're going to stay in your room, you're gonna stay right here. I'm taking away all of your equipment, iPads, phone, computers, and by the way, those are deadly things. I saw this week a picture of a python going out of a tree into the attic of a home, a giant 25-foot python. And I saw that and I said, 
That's what we're letting in our homes with all of this equipment. Folks, if your kids get old enough to have these things, have them monitored, have them controlled, but make sure there's a python going into their life and their home, and therefore they are deadly, more deadly than a python will ever be. So that's a way you discipline. Now, if that doesn't work, you just pack on more problems. Let me tell you something. You don't discipline proportionally to that which they've done wrong. Now follow me here. If a scale of one to 10, the worst thing is a 10, and let's say they do a three, you punish them on the basis as if they'd done a six. Well, boy, you're over punishing me. All I did was, you know, steal $5 out of your pocketbook. No, 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 no. You punish much more than that which was rebuked and gone against. And that way, you see, you're beginning to train. You got me? Basic thing. We had a couple in our church. They moved to another city. Great family. Had three kids. Tremendous Christian couple. And, and they set a rule that when you have a birthday party as a young child, when you get all your presents, you can keep only two your presents that you get at a birthday. All the rest of them we're going to give to goodwill. That's what they did. They'd have a birthday party. They'd pick out two. They'd give all the rest of the presents to goodwill. Now, also, there was a rule that when I, they told them to pick up their toys, any toys they left out, they would give to goodwill. And one night, true story, I'm not making it up, one night, the little boy named Mike was praying and they prayed together at night, and he was praying for his mom, his dad, his sister, and his brother. He was praying for his teachers. He was praying for everything, and he prayed for goodwill. And he continued to pray, and he said, Lord, uh, I want to be a, a fine person like goodwill, so I won't have to keep giving him all my toys. <laughs> you see, parents... There's a lot of ways to discipline your children with love and redemption. Say, so, well, I want my children to be happy. Listen, when you discipline them, they won't always be happy. You're not in the business of having a happy child. You're in the business of having a child grow up to be like God designed them, and it's expensive to do that, and you won't always be popular, and you won't always be the best friend with your daughter or with your son. You see, a lot of people don't discipline. They just pay off the child, bribe the child. If you'll do this, I'll give you that, or if we go over here. I'll... Listen, that is the most Ignorant, foolish, non-biblical way to bring up a child than you can imagine. Now, somebody might say, here's an eight-year-old. Man, he is sarcastic. He is mean. He is vicious. He pays no attention. We tried everything in the world. There's nothing in the world that we can do with him. He's eight years old, and it's just, he's just a disaster. What can I do? Dr. Redmond said a good idea was to be take that young rebellious king out of the garden and put him in the briar patch. And the way you do that, you take everything that is theirs, everything in that room that is theirs, take it out of the room, every single thing, and store it somewhere. All they've got is their bed and the clothes they'll wear the next day. Everything else is removed. 
and say, that will last for a month, son. Pretty heavy. You will get one of your lesser possessions back every day for a month. And as long as you are perfect in being obedient and respectful and honest within this family. The once you fail, bang. We go back down, it goes back into the closet and we start a period over again. That's severe. That's what God did in the Garden of Eden, by the way. Adam and Eve rebelled and God just threw them out of the garden, said you're going to work and you're going to die. Oh, that's severe. I'm talking about severe punishment there, folks. Now don't just put this in and say the pastor recommended this. No, no, no. I'm just trying to understand that parents have to be farsighted with a goal in mind because children, by definition, do not know what is best for them. And when you and I fall and fumble, we are being childish because that means at that moment, we didn't know what was best for us. Operative principle, parents, this is it. If you are having trouble with your child, you say, my child is giving me trouble. The problem is not with the child, it is with you as a parent. You say, well, the psychologist said that this child has, and they have all kinds of chemical imbalances they can treat only with heavy medication. There may be situations like that, but they are rare and not as prominent as the secular psychologist would have us believe. Parenting. Parenting. Sometimes nearsighted parenting had to stay in there close. Most of the time, it is far-sighted parenting with a goal in mind. And parents be willing to pay the price. It's easier to bribe. It's easier to give in. It's easier to say yes than it is to get down in the trench and try to love that child all the way to God and all the way to life that is worthwhile and beautiful and fulfilling. I was eating in Myrtle Beach years ago in a restaurant named Aunt Maud's Seafood and Country Cooking Restaurant. You can't get a better name for a restaurant than that in my book. And as I was waiting in line, and restaurants like that, you always wait in line, incidentally, the owner came out, he was speaking to us, and I was sitting in a rocker, and he came down, and a rocker came by and he sat down, and we began to talk. He said, I want to tell you a story. You may know about it a little bit. I was pastor in Columbia, South Carolina then. And he told me this story, and I've never, never, never forgotten it. He said, it's about Rusty Welburn. Rusty Welburn, a year or so before, had gone on a crime spree through the whole state of South Carolina, burning, destroying, attacking, beating up, until finally he killed a beautiful young 19-year-old girl. He was prosecuted, 
death penalty. I don't think anybody who knew him or any member of the family were there in the courtroom when he was being tried. And this owner said, Rusty was sentenced to death row and he was there for five years. But he said, I want to tell you what just happened and what happened in those five years he was there. Said he was hopeless, helpless. He said his story was a tragic story. He's brought up in West Virginia in the poorest of the poorest of family, numerous children. He didn't know who his daddy was. His mother had all kinds of diseases and he, he just existed. Hated by almost everybody, a little bully. In junior high school, he, had, he wore for three years one pair of pants and two shirts. The teachers didn't like him. He didn't like anybody. He fought all the time. He's rejected. Tragic story in West Virginia. When he got in the ninth grade, Rusty dropped out of school. He lived under bridges and fields, public restrooms, would steal what he needed to eat, would steal what he wanted, would fight drugs, alcohol, you name it. He went on this spree through South Carolina, killed this young girl. Now he was in death row. At the same time, there was a man named Bob McAllister. He was the associate chief of staff for the governor of the state of South Carolina. And the governor's office was close to the state prison. And Bob was a Christian. He said, I want to do something at lunch and have a minister in the prison. So he started going to the prison which he could, had permission because of his affair with the state. And he would go every day during lunchtime, he would visit those on death row. He said the first time he went into Rusty's cell, he was there by himself. He said he was lying in the corner in the fetal position, unmoving. He said the cell was stitched and so the only thing moving were roaches that were crawling over Rusty, and he said he didn't even notice the, the brush one of them off. Said he went over there to him and told him he was a Christian, there was hope for him, that Paul had killed a lot of Christians through his leadership and that God could forgive him. And he said, I read a little Bible. Said Rusty just opened his eyes and closed them, never said a word. Bob said, I went there week after week after week and had no response, found the same kind of person who was hopeless and helpless. He said, finally one day I went in and he opened his eyes and I told him how God, though he'd committed this heinous crime, could forgive him and he could be a new person. And though he was on death row, he'd have some kind of purpose in his life. And he said he listened and suddenly for the first time he broke down and began to cry. He began to cry, conviction. And he said, when he got through crying, he prayed to receive Jesus in his life. He had no hope, no future, nobody cared a hoot about him. Nobody, even who had known him before, knew probably he's in prison. And he said, Bob left. He came back the next week. He said, in there was Rusty sitting in a chair. He was a brand new person. He was smiling and said, I think God has really forgiven me. I feel like a new person. So Bob McAllister in the next three or four years went there twice a week, read the Bible to him, discipled him. And he said, Rusty felt so guilty. He was trying to figure out how he could 
make restitution for all the people he'd robbed and hit and beaten, and especially to the family of that little girl that he had killed. And he said, of all things, that little girl's brother, and by the way, I discovered she lived just a few blocks away from where I lived at that time. That little girl's brother became a Christian. And he had so hated Rusty because this was the young man who killed his sister. But he decided that he must forgive Rusty. And so he wrote Rusty a letter in prison. Rusty was thrilled. And he scribbled back a note and said, you know, I'm a Christian. And this brother said, I want to come and see you. So it was arranged, can you imagine? Here's the brother who'd become a Christian who'd so hated the person who killed his sister, rightly so, and now he was coming to see him with his wife. Bob McAllister set it up. He said, I was there when we opened the cell. It said they rushed in each other's arm, just weeping, weeping, weeping. And that brother said, I forgive you. And Rusty said, I, I don't see how you can. Speed up the time a little bit. It was a day for Rusty to be executed for his crime. He'd not tried to get out. He told McAllister he was looking forward to dying because for the first time, he'd have a family. He'd have a family. So Bob was with him. The execution was 1, 1 a.m. in the morning. Bob went with him early in the evening. He said, Rusty, what do you want to do? And he said, Bob, I'm going to lie on my cot here, look forward to going to my family I've never had. Read the Bible to me and pray. Read to me about heaven. And Bob said he did it line upon line, verse upon verse, until he looked over there and Rusty appeared to be asleep. He said he stopped reading and praying and went over there and got a little blanket and covered him with a blanket. He called for the jailer to open the door and he was going out and he said, he didn't know why. He said, I just turned around and kissed Rusty on the forehead and the jailer let me out and I left. A couple of hours later, Rusty was being carried away to his execution. And as he was going away, he talked to the person who was going out and said, you know, it's a shame that a man has to live to be 23 years of age, that the last night he's on this earth, he was kissed and tucked in for the first time. Dads, when a mother is a Christian, statistically, 17% of the time the kids will become a Christian. When the dad is a Christian in the family, 93% of the time the kids become a Christian. The shrinking father, kiss, Tuck in your kids every night and you'll be a parent who understands how to love and discipline and keeps your eye as a far-sighted parent on the goal that God has and you must have for that son and that daughter. And that is character and Christ. Thank you for listening to the 930 Sunday Sermon Podcast from the Woodway campus of Second Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about the church, please visit us at second.org. 
That's second.org.